Namaskaram, Michael. Namaskaram. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having this meeting uh, with me. Right. It's for a very special occasion right. um, because as a little introduction also for the people who are watching. Yes. Um, about a year ago or in March uh, 2022, I reached out to you that I um, had the idea to compile a book about your mm -hmm. writings and talks of um, Ula Dunarpadu, 41st is on what is. And um, I wanted to ask your permission if you agreed if I would use uh, your text and your talks for compiling mm. that book. Yeah. And of course, also your translations, especially. Yes. And you said that was a very good idea. So mm. I started doing that. Right. And my motivation for that was uh, um, firstly um, for my own sadhana, yes. because I had the 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 wish to kind of dive into that text i really yeah. i didn't have done that before at a really serious in a really serious way right uh, and combining it with the book project since i have some experience with writing and translating and publishing right. books helped me to to commit myself seriously uh, to it as a project and also yeah. to be one pointed right so it had had been has been quite a journey yes and uh uh, it was really a, a, a labor of love, mm. and it resulted that that finally this book has been published right. this week, uh, which is called uh, Ramana Maharshi's Forty Verses on What Is and the Ultimate Truth on Being as You Actually Are. And one of the one of the very great things is that you also were willing to write an introduction for this book, right. and that introduction in itself is already really awesome to read. It's kind of a Summary of Bhagavan's teaching. So I'm yeah. very, very happy with that and also very grateful that you were willing to yes. do that. And um, uh, let me just say it right away for everyone who is interested in this book, there is a free sample available. It's That sample is about a quarter of the book in itself and it will be made available through the description under this, this YouTube video. Um, so... Um, yeah, just to dive in in, in, the, in the subject of this book, could yes. you please tell uh, why Bhagavan wrote this work? Because it's a philosophical poem. Why mm. did he wrote it? Or why, um, did, why did he write it? Sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Bhagavan didn't give any teachings of his own accord. That is, in his view, everything is perfect. Or the only thing is perfect. There's no, there's no, there's no teacher and no one to be taught and no need for any teaching. That's in the highest level. So he, he, he responded when people ask questions. So whatever teachings he's given have been in response to um, particular questions. The only exceptions to this are three of the uh, songs of Arunachya Stuti Panchakam. That is um, uh, uh, Arunachala Patikam, Arunacha Ashtakam, and Arunacha Aksharamalai. All these he composed spontaneously. But when someone remarked about this, these are the only works you composed of your own accord, he, uh, he replied, just like I, I, I respond to you when you prompt me from outside, this was my response to when Arunacha prompted me from within. So of his own accord, Bhagavan didn't write anything, didn't say anything, because there was nothing for him to say or to write. However, when people asked questions, 
he gave answers that were appropriate to the questioner. So that is why we find a huge variety in his teachings. If, for example, if we read a book like Talks, we find all, we, it's as if he expresses all sorts of different views. So does that mean he has no consistent teaching? No, that is not the case. That is, as he said in reply to Swami Yogananda, he's the one who wrote um, Autobiography of a Yogi and went to America and started the, um, an organization called the Self-Realization Fellowship. In the 1930s, he came to visit Bhagavan and his visit is recorded in a book called Talks. Um, one of the questions he asked Bhagavan was, what teaching is, are to be, is to be given for the uplift of the masses? And Bhagavan take, say, replied, teachings cannot be given en masse. Teaching needs to be in accordance with the taught. So different teachings are appropriate to people at different levels of spiritual development. So in many of the books that record dialogues, we, what we read there is what Bhagavan answers to particular questions. And um, not everyone is ready to go deep into this subject. Not everyone is, who came to Bhagavan came from the annihilation of ego. Um, so he, he gave answers that were appropriate to each individual, what was appropriate for their progress from where they stand at the time they asked the question. Another problem with books like talks and so on is the inaccuracy of the recording. That is, people, it, it, it wasn't recorded, um, it, there were no tape recordings of Bhagavan talking. Um, so uh, whatever was recorded was what people heard. And they would, after hearing the, the conversation, they would later write it down from memory and of course they cannot so the, what is recorded firstly it's gone through the filter of their memory but even before going through the filter of their memory it's gone through the filter of their understanding because they can't record more than they understand and Bhagavan's teachings are very deep and very subtle so not everyone always understood what he was saying perfectly many of the the nuances in what Bhagavan was saying were missed in these recordings. So books like Talks, Day by Day, and uh, Maharsha's Gospel, there are good things in all these books, but they, we have to take everything we read in them with a pinch of salt. It's not the exact words of Bhagavan. Mm -hmm. um, and even if it is, if it were the exact words of Bhagavan, it is not necessarily his core teachings. It is the teachings he gave appropriate to the individual. So the most important source for understanding Bhagavan's teachings is his own original writings. And he, he wrote, his, most of his writings were translations, but he made on the request of various people. He translated um, some uh, rare texts from some of the Upa Agamas, which are, the Agamas are generally, the, the Shaiva Agamas, they're generally 
following the philosophy of Shaiva Siddhanta, which is a, generally a dualistic philosophy, but here and there there are texts that have a non-dualistic import. So he translated two of those. He translated some of the works of Adi Shankara and a few other things he translated. So the, the, his collective works in Tamil, the majority of it is um, uh, Anuvada, that means translated works. Um, the, so his own original writings are relatively few, because as I say, he didn't write anything of his own accord. One of the earliest and most important of his original writings is Nana, Who Am I? This he this was originally a series of questions and answers. That is in the very early days when he was in his early 20s, around 1901, 1902, a devotee called Shiva Prakashan Pillai came to him. In those days, nobody knew what anything about his teachings or, I mean, nothing, generally in those days he was talking very little. So nobody really knew what he, what he had but he but even had any idea that he had come to give some very unique and precious teachings to the world. Uh -huh. But when Shiva Prakashan Pillai approached Bhagavan, he, before he came to Bhagavan, when he was studying at university, one of the subjects he studied was philosophy. And in those days, it meant probably a little bit of mixture of Western philosophy, but mostly Indian philosophy. And the, the one question that, um, that he, he considered the most important question that Shib Kashan Play considered most important was, who am I? And it wasn't from all that he had read, he hadn't got a clear idea uh, what is the answer to the question, who am I? So the first question he asked Bhagavan was, Swami, who am I? In reply to which Bhagavan said, Arivainan, awareness alone is I. And then he asked Bhagavan, what is the nature of that awareness? And Bhagavan said, Satchitananda. Uh, Satchitananda means existence, consciousness, bliss, pure, pure existence, pure consciousness, or pure awareness, and pure happiness. Um, so uh, those, those questions were but Shibkash and Pillai asked, they, was, they were so pertinent, so relevant to the core teachings of Bhagavan, but later, for many years, for more than 20 years, nobody knew about these questions and answers until Shibkash and Pillai published a, 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 verse, a, a biography of Bhagavan in verse form called Ramana Charita Ahaval. And in that biography, he he summarizes some of the answers that he received from Bhagavan, and he added an appendix at the end of that book, uh, giving the, um, some of the questions and answers that he, um, that some questions he had asked and answers that Bhagavan had given. Mm -hmm. Then only people knew about this work, and. Um, so and then they, people uh, requested that uh, more were well, there any more things uh, you asked. So finally, it was published in the form of a book of thirty questions and answers. Uh, that is, it was first published as a appendix to Ramana Charita Havel, I think, in nineteen twenty three. A, a year or two later, it was published as as um, 
probably around 1924, 25. It was published as 30 questions and answers. And around 1926 or so, Bhagavan himself, of his own accord, rewrote those questions and answers in the form of an essay and added a new paragraph at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So the reason I refer to this, this is an example of how the important works of Bhagavan came into existence. But three of the, the most important works of Bhagavan um, uh, in, in, in poetic form, works of Upadesha, are uh, Anma Vide, uh, Upadesha Undia, and Uludunapadu. These works were all written by Bhagavan in response to the request of Murugana. Murugana came to Bhagavan in 1923. Um, in 1927, that is one thing Murugana learned very soon after coming to Bhagavan, was that the majority of people who were around Bhagavan, firstly, didn't really understand his teachings, and secondly, they weren't practicing his teachings. And in fact, there was a there were a group of people who were saying Bhagavan's teachings are too difficult, and were recommending. Uh, practicing mantra, japra, or other things. Um, so when Murugana was aware of this, that so many that people were under this wrong impression that what Bhagavan, the Bhagavan teachings are too difficult, so he wrote uh, um, a refrain and a sub-refrain, the, the refrain and post-refrain, uh, Pallavi and Anupallavi, for this song, Anmabhide, and he asked Bhagavan to write the Charanangal, that's the verses. So the, the refrain of that song is, ah, extremely easy. Atmavidya, ah, extremely easy. Atmavidya means the, the science of self-knowledge, basically, um, or knowing, one's, knowing oneself, we can take it. Atmavidya means knowing oneself. So knowing oneself is extremely easy. So that's the refrain. And it's a re refrain for a kirtana, which is a particular type of song in which every verse uh, concludes with the refrain. So every verse is supporting what is said in the refrain. So he wrote it like that in order to get Bhagavan to put in his own words why this path is so easy. Um, and so Bhagavan wrote this uh, work, Anma Vidde. That was in April 1927. At about the same time, I think very shortly after, but within a matter of days or weeks, he also asked Bhagavan to write Upadesha Undia. And that was also written in a particular context. That is, when writing um, songs about Bhagavan, one of the themes of his songs, he was writing a, um, a, a song called Tiruvundia. On the lines, in, in, similar, in a similar manner to the Tiruvundia, written by Manikavasaka in, um, in uh, Tiruvasakam. Manikavasaka's Tiruvundia is about the, um, the various Shiva Leelas, the various divine plays of Lord Shiva. So when Murugana wrote this, he wrote about the divine plays of many different gods, but taking all those gods to be Bhagavan. That is, it was Bhagavan in the form of Rama who, who conquered um, uh, the demon Ravana. 
It was uh, Bhagavan in the form of Krishna who gave the Bhagavad Gita, and so on and so forth. It was Bhagavan in the form of Shiva who did all the Shiva Leelas. And even there's a second part of that Tirurundia, in which he says it was Bhagavan in the form of Jesus who died on the cross for the, uh, for the re uh, removal of the sins of the world. And it was Bhagavan in the form of Buddha who started the wheel of Dharma rolling. So for Murugana, all names and forms of God, it's Bhagavan in so many different names and forms. So anyway, while he was writing this, one of the stories was a particular Shiva Leela, when Shiva goes to subdue the pride of some so-called rishis in the Dharakavana who were following the Vedic path of, of karma, uh, karmiya karmas, that is karmas, uh, uh, ritualistic actions performed for the sake of fulfillment of desires. So in that in, in the context of that story, he asked Bhagavan to write the stories, the, the, the Upadesha, the teachings that Shiva gave to, um, to those rishis. Those teachings is Upad became the work Upadesha India, um, which Bhagavan later himself translated into Telugu, Sanskrit, and Malayalam under the name Upadesha Saram. And that means the essence, essence of spiritual instruction. Am essence of spiritual instruction, yes. Yeah. So this was in 19, this was in April, uh, April to May 1927. A year later, in um in July 1928, um Murugana had gathered together some uh miscellaneous verses that Bhagavan had written on different occasions. And he suggested to Bhagavan, these could be made into a work if you would um, write more verses to, to fill it up, to make it into a, a coherent exposition. And the particular subject he asked, he asked Bhagavan to, um, so that we may be saved, teach us the nature of reality and the means of attaining it. Mm -hmm. So that is that is giving Bhagavan a... a that that's the best question because it gives, leaves Bhagavan free to write whatever he, he wants to write about the nature of reality and the means of attaining it. So this work Uludunapadu came into existence. While Bhagavan was writing it, um, that is, he and Murugana always worked together very closely. So Bhagavan would write some verses, Murugana would arrange them in order. Murugana would say, oh, there seems to be a gap here, or we could... This. He, Murugana was making so many suggestions, and Bhagavan, um, to, to, to make it into a coherent exposition. And while this was going on, one by one, Murugana started to remove the old verses, which were, in a way, just like a bait. Uh, um, he removed the old verses, and they later got added to Uludunapadu Anabandam. So almost all the verses of Uludunapadu, all the 42 verses, were verses written within a three-week period from the, uh, from, uh, in the, uh, toward the, the end of, eight, of July and beginning of August. I think it was over a three-week period. Um, Bhagavan composed all the verses. And eventually, when when Bhagavan had completed the work to his satisfaction and to Murugana's satisfaction, it consisted of 40 verses plus one Mangalam verse. Mm -hmm. 
Mangalam verse means uh, it's an auspicious introduction. That one Mangalam verse was a, a, a two-line verse. That is the last two lines of what is now the second Mangalam, the first, sorry, the first Mangalam verse. At that time, uh, Kaviya Ganta, Ganpati Sastri, happened to be there, and he was told about this work. So he asked if he could have a look at it. He could, he could, he could speak Tamil and he could read Tamil, but he he didn't really know literary Tamil. So the verses of Vuludunapti, he wouldn't have been able to understand them. But he had a look at the work, and his first comment was, "Why, when all these verses are forty, uh, four-line verses, why this Mangalam alone is a two-line verse?" Uh, shouldn't it be in this, shouldn't it be also be a four line verse? Shouldn't it be the same meter? Then Bhagavan explained to him, actually it is the same meter, that, that Mangalam verse is what is called a Kural Vemba, which is a two-line Vemba, whereas the other verses are four-line Vembas. It's actually the same meter. But uh, Kaviganta said, well, wouldn't it be better if it was also four-line? So then Bhagavan wrote the first two lines which clarify what it, the, the meaning of the last two lines. But Kavyaganta still wasn't satisfied, because he was a Mangalam with no mention of any name or form of God. So in, according to his way of thinking, how can you have a Mangalam without referring to a name or form of God? What Bhagavan is talking about in that verse is Ulladu, what exists. In other words, the ultimate reality. But that didn't satisfy Kaviganti. He wanted to have a name or form of God. So he looked through the work to see if he could find any name or name of God mentioned in any of the verses. Finally, he came across one verse in which the word Mahasan occurs. Mahasan means the great Lord. It is generally a name of Lord Shiva. So he says, ah, the, here's a verse that mentions God. Wouldn't it be more suitable to have this as the Mangalam verse than that other verse you've got? So then um, Bhagavan and Murugana, um, they, they would have been amused by this, but then they, they discussed among themselves and they decided, but since the first Mangalam verse is pure Atmavichara, a pure description of Atma Bichara, and this, that other verse that Kaviyaganta wants to have as a Mangalam, it is, it is about the path of surrender, which actually are one and the same path, but it's described in terms of the path of surrender. So they decided to make that, as a, that verse with Mahasan as a second Mangalam verse, and then Bhagavan wrote one more verse, um, which I I think if I remember correctly, it's verse 31, he wrote to complete to make it up to 40 again. So that is how these 40, how this work came into existence. But, but the main point is Murugana, what the subject that Murugana asked Bhagavan to write about was revealed to us the nature of reality and the means of attaining it so that we may be saved. Yes. So that is what this this Uludunaptu uh, is all about. And why is it such an important work? If we take any work of Bhagavan, if we read Nana, it's the, definitely the most important work. Bhagavan has said everything that needs to be said there. 
If we redo Pradesh India, oh, this is very special. Bhagavan has said so many important things here. This is the most special work. If we read Uludan Abdu, this is the most special work. If we read Anna uh, Vide, he said in the five short verses, he said all that needs to be said. If we read Arachastuti Panchakam, if we read, for example, <laughs> that is definitely the most important work because that's the actual practical application of this. So we can look at any work of Bhagavan and uh, take it to be the most important one because every work of Bhagavan is important. Yet a full and comprehensive understanding of Bhagavan's teaching, we need to carefully study all his own original writings. For example, we cannot adequately understand work like Aksharamlai or Ashtakam or Patikam or any of these five hymns without understanding Uludu Napadu. But Uludu Napadu is about the practice of self-investigation and the reason why we should investigate ourselves. But the actual application of that, of what we are taught in Uludu Napadu, the nitty-gritty of actually applying it in practice is what we are taught about in, in Aranach Aksharamlai. So they're completely complementary. Each one that is, without Uludunapdu, we cannot understand Aksharamlai. Without Aksharamlai, we cannot fully understand the actual practical application of what Bhagavan teaches is in Uludunapdu. So all his works are extremely important. But what is special about Uludunapadu, more than in any other work, Bhagavan has, has um, explained the fundamental principles of his teachings. If we grasp the fundamental teachings of his principles, everything else falls in place. So Uludunapadu is an extremely important work. Yes. Thank you. And, and, oh, and Murugana has written a comment somewhere in, in uh, Ramana Sanidhi Murai, there's a verse in which Murugana has given his own explanation about the importance of Uludu Napadu. Because in those days, there were so many people who had so many different ideas about Bhagavan's teachings. And they, there were many people who were saying Ramana Gita. It's the it's core of Bhagavan's teachings. All you need to read is Ramana Gita. That was the belief. But when Natanananda first came to Bhagavan, that was before Nana had been published, before this, uh, uh, any of these works, Amavide or Uludunapdu or Pudeshundia, before any of these works. In those days, the only writings of Bhagavan were some of the five hymns and a few miscellaneous verses. Um, so when Natananda came, everyone was saying, ah, if you want to understand Bhagavan's teaching, you have to read um, uh, Ramana Gita. But Ramana Gita is in Sanskrit. In those days, it had, it hadn't been translated into Tamil, and Natananda didn't know uh, Sanskrit. So he came to Bhagavan. And he said to Bhagavan, Bhagavan, everyone is saying this book is the most important book, but we have to read this book in order to understand your teachings. Um, can you tell me what's, explain to me what's in it? Because I'm not able, to, I don't know Sanskrit. And Bhagavan just laughed and said, it's nothing. Some years ago, they wanted to, um, they wanted me to agree to their views. Um, 
So they tried to pull me down and I tried to pull, pull them up, but they were unwilling to come up and I was unwilling to go down. <laughs> so their project was a failure. But like a circus acrobat, if a circus acrobat is walking on a tightrope and slips, he'll do a triple somersault before landing on the net to make it look like it's a special feat. <laughs> like that, he composed this work, Ramla Gita, to make it seem that uh, this was a very profound philosophical discussion. But actually, if we go into Ramla Gita, there's very little really there. Most of the verses have no real substance in them. Very few verses about self-investigation, but that's about it. There's not really very much there. But um, but people, there were people who were trying to say, no, this is a real teaching of Bhagavan. Bhagavan in in some there's a chapter in Ramana Gita about um, the importance of uplifting society, about Shakti and Siddhis and all these sort of things, which had nothing at all to do with Bhagavan's teaching. But they were trying to, to make out that this is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. So Murugan has written in one of the verses, so that these contrary views, these views contrary to Bhagavan's teachings should not stand. Bhagavan gave this Uludunapadu so that his real teaching should be known to the world forever. That was Murugana's view on it. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Well, I can definitely say that while I was working on this book and some verses were, re were really, really, really challenging for me. Yes. For example, the first Mangalam verse. Uh, but it, it definitely had an impact on me on yes. understanding his teachings much, much, much better than I did before. When we read Uludunapdu, naturally yeah. we start with the Mangalam verse, but we will understand very little yes. of it. Yes. Until we have read the whole work, then yes. when we come back to the Mangalam verse, then it will be more meaningful to us. But, but that Mangalam verse is an extremely deep, it's, the, the meaning of that verse is extremely deep. I so think it's, it's one of the most most beautiful verses in, uh, it in, is, in yes, the whole it world. Is. <laughs> and I did I did start with it as first because I just worked chronolo chronologically. Yes. <laughs> but I had to give up and I thought, uh, well, I just go through all the other verses and at the end I come back to this verse. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then it was it was still a challenge, but it, it yeah. eventually I was able to using your writings and talks, of course, to compile yeah. the text out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So um when I created a cover of this book, and of course, Uladu Napoli is translated, uh, you translated as 40 verses on what is, or I also saw on your website, I guess, 40 verses, 40 verses on what exists, and you, you yeah. can tell more about it. But I'm aware of, if I'm looking at some people um, that I'm in contact with who are interested in Bhagavan's teachings and um, Advaita, mm that if they hear about 40 verses on what is, that it doesn't really click what, what's so important about that. Yeah. So, and actually, in when you explain in all the videos and writings that you did uh, on this work, you say it's, it's, it's about being as you actually are. Yes. So that's why I added that as a subtitle, as a, as a subtitle on the book cover. Um, but I think it's a very, very important question to ask you, and if you want to explain that, what what is has hmm. to do with being as you actually are? Okay. Um, what actually exists 
is ourself. As Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the seventh paragraph of Nana, Jatatamai Ulladu Apmasarupamondre. Ulladu means what exists or what is. Jatatamai is an adverb, but meaning actually. So what actually exists is only Apmasarupa. Atmaswarupa means, Swarupa means, literal meaning of Swarupa is own form, uh, but it means the real nature. Uh, so, Atmaswarupa is the real nature of ourself. In other words, ourself as we actually are. What we actually are is what actually exists. So, when Bhagavan is talking about Ulladu, he's not talking about some abstract thing, he's talking about our own existence. Because we alone are what actually exists. So these 40 verses on what exists is 40 verses on what we actually are. So how can we know what we actually are? That, that is, what is the nature of what we actually are? And how can we, what is the means of attaining it? That is what Murugana was asking. He didn't use, in Murugana's question, he didn't use the word Uludu. Uludu literally means Uludu is a um, Uludu has various different meanings depending on where it's used. That is, the ul is the root of a verb, but it's it's a tenseless verb meaning to be or to exist. Uludu um, is a is what is called a participial noun. That is, it is a noun uh, formed from a verb. Um, so what Ulladu, as a noun, what it means is what exists. It can also mean being in the sense of existing. And it also is the third person uh, singular form of the verb, of the tenseless verb. So it, it also means it is. So, depending on the context, we can see whether it's used as a noun or as a verb. If it's used as a verb, it means it is. If it's used as a noun, it means what is, or it can also mean uh, being. Mm -hmm. So you could also say 40 verses on being. On being, but, but being there is um, being in the sense of existing, not in the sense of existence. That is, what is, what, what exists we can take as existence. But when, it, when it's taken as a verb, it means the, the state of being, the state of existing. Mm -hmm. So um, but the trouble is in English, we participles ending in ing can, can be, um, they, they, they can be um, uh, present participles, they can also be nouns. That is being as a noun. Mm -hmm. it, it being is also uh, a participle verb. So uh, in Tamil, it's more clear what part of speech it belongs to. But these participial nouns in the third person, they can also be verbal, uh, verbal noun referring to, well, most of them are referring to action. So it can mean what does that or, or doing that. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's not about doing, it's about being. Mm -hmm. So it has, it, it's a word with very, very deep meaning. Mm -hmm. And as I say, Ulladu is 
There are other word, verbs in Tamil for existence. For example, iru also means to be or to exist. Mm -hmm. But uludu is special because it's a tenseless verb. So it, 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 it is, it's, it's existence in the most fundamental sense. So when he says what exists, when, when uludu means what exists, it, it's not talking about any time-bound existence. It's talking about existence itself, mm -hmm. existence, uh, pure existence, pure being. What's the difference between pure existence and time-bound existence? We talk about many things. We say things exist. Mm -hmm. um, this microphone exists. This, mm -hmm. um, this world around us exists, we say. But all that is the existence of particular things. But pure existence is not the existence of anything. It is existence itself. Mm -hmm. So what all things share in common is existence. Mm -hmm. However, not everything that seems to exist actually exists. What actually exists is only the pure existence. But things that seem to exist like this, this person I seem to be, the, these objects around me, this, all the objects of the world, the thoughts in the mind, all these things, though they seem to exist, they do not actually exist. There's a whole philosophy about this, that is, this is one of the most important ideas in Advaita philosophy. It, actually, it's in Vedanta in general. There's a very nice... Um, principle that Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, in, chap in verse 16 of chapter 2, that in the context of that chapter, um, uh, Arjuna is having, um, having second thoughts about how he can enter this battle, because on the other side of the, siding with his opponents, there's his grandfather, his uh, guru, uh, that is Dronachari, who taught him about archery, and there's so many respected elders and relatives on the other side. So how can I fight? Though this, this is a, a just battle, how can I fight against these people? How can I fight? Because when you fight, you have to fight to kill. So Krishna's in the context of assuring him that that uh, um, well, there's many things Krishna says there, but he says those who are those who are to be slain, they're already slain by me. That none, no one can go on forever. So, and everyone has when the time comes for death, death will come. With nothing we can do to prevent that. Whether our death is in a war or in a um, from disease or from an accident or whatever, or just a heart attack, we're going to die one day. So, and Krishna says, those who are to be killed are already killed by me. That means it's already decided who should live and who should die. But you, as a Kshatriya, as a warrior, you have a duty to, to fight. So in this context, Krishna also talks about that this death is only for the body. It's not for the. It's not for what we actually are. So the death of the body, he says, it's just like changing a shirt. When 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 a shirt gets worn out, 
we discard the old shirt and wear a new shirt. Likewise with this body. When the body has served its purpose, we take a new body. Such is the nature of this embodied existence. So in that context, when he's talking about that, Krishna says a very nice principle in verse 16. He says, there is no existence of what does not exist. And there is no non-existence of what does exist. That has, if we think about it carefully, that has extremely profound implications. When he said there's no existence of what does not exist, it means that if something doesn't exist now, it cannot come into existence in the future. It cannot have existed in the past. And when he said there's no non-existence for what exists, that means what actually exists must always exist. So Bhagavan often used to refer to this principle. That verse, incidentally, is one of the verses that Bhagavan translated, one of the 42 verses that Bhagavan translated in Bhagavad Gita Saram, the essence of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, but this, this principle is one that Bhagavan often used to say. He often used to say, if something exists at one time and not at another time, it doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist. And you were mentioning earlier about the definition of reality. This mm -hmm. is Bhagavan's definition of reality. Mm -hmm. When Bhagavan talks about things being real or unreal, what he means by real is what actually exists. What he means by unreal is what does not actually exist, even if it seems to exist. Mm -hmm. So anything that exists at one time and not at another time doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist. Mm -hmm. That means all phenomena, because they appear and disappear, they don't actually exist. They merely seem to exist. And in whose view do they seem to exist? Only in the view of ourself as ego. So all other things derive their semi-existence from the semi-existence of ourself as ego. So does ego really exist? No, it doesn't, because ego appears in waking and dream, it disappears in sleep. So it comes into existence and it ceases to exist. So it is not a permanent existence. So it does not actually exist even when it seems to exist. So what is the one thing that exists permanently? It is only our own existence, our fundamental awareness, I am. Because in waking, we're aware I am. In dream, we're aware I am. In sleep, we are aware I am. So the one real existence is only our own existence, that existence that is ever shining as I am. Mm -hmm. That is what Bhagavan means by Uludu. Mm -hmm. So that is what we actually are. Yes. And so, yeah. while talking about the definition of reality, Bhagavan elaborated upon this. That is, he said there are three defining characteristics of what is real. In other words, what actually exists. Firstly, it must be permanent. Because if it's not permanent, it... it gains existence and it loses existence. That means it's not intrinsically existent. If something is intrinsically existent, it must always exist. If something comes into existence and ceases to exist, it's not intrinsically existent. 
something that is not intrinsic has to be borrowed from somewhere else. So things that are not intrinsically existent borrow their semi-existence from something that is intrinsically existent. Um, so first definition of what is real is it must it must uh, always exist. It must be permanent, eternal. Mm -hmm. uh, second uh, uh, defining characteristic, it must be unchanging. Mm -hmm. Because if something changes, it's one thing before the change, it's another thing after the change. So what it was before the change has ceased to exist, so it's impermanent. What it becomes after the change is also impermanent. So anything that is changing is by its by its by virtue of the fact that it changes, it's impermanent. Therefore, it is unreal. And the third and very important, I can't say the most important because they're all important, but the third and particularly important uh, definition Bhagavan gave, it must be self-shining, Swayam Prakasa. What does he mean by self-shining? That is, it must know itself by its own light of awareness. That is, anything that does not know its own existence seems to exist only in the view of something else. So it's a dependent existence. Because according to Bhagavan, existing and shining are one and the same thing. Mm -hmm. Existing means being, shining means being known. But an unknown existence is no existence at all, according to Bhagavan. When we say things exist, when we say this world exists, why do we say this world exists? Because we know it. If it didn't appear in our awareness, we wouldn't have any reason to suppose it exists. But even though it appears in our awareness, it doesn't actually exist. It merely seems to exist because it appears and disappears. It's got no... It's. It's not permanent and it's constantly changing. So it's not real. And it, it is not self-shining. This world shines only by the mind, as he says in verse 7 of Uludunapadu. In verse 7 of Uludunapadu, he, he uses two words, uluhu, which means world, and aribu, which means awareness. But in that context, what he means by awareness is the awareness that knows the world. In other words, the mind or ego. So he says, though the world and awareness arise and subside simultaneously, appear and disappear simultaneously, it is by the mind alone that the world shines. It is by awareness alone that the world shines. In other words, the world appears only in the view of the mind. And then he goes on to say, that which... Uh, which uh, which exists or shines without appearing and disappearing as the base or the ground or the, uh, the foundation for what appears and disappears, that alone is the real substance. That alone is poral. By poral, he means what we actually are. So all this may seem to people, oh, this is just philosophy. What has it got to do with spiritual practice or everything? It's got everything to do with spiritual practice. Because we first need to distinguish, we first need to understand what we actually are before we can investigate ourselves. If we don't understand that we are that awareness that shines always as I am, 
when we are asked to investigate ourselves, we'll start investigating something that we now we take. Now it seems to us that we have this body, this bundle of five sheaths called body, um, with that my the physical form of the body, the life that animates it, the the mind, the intellect, and the will. These five components are, are referred to technically as the panchakosa, the five sheaths. And as Bhagavan says in verse 5 of Uludnapatu, Udul Panchakosa Uru, the body is a form composed of five sheaths. Therefore, all five are included in the term body. So when Bhagavan talks about body, he's not just talking about the physical form of the body. I, that is, Bhagavan often says, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. That is, Ego is that which is always aware of itself as I am this body. But when we are aware of ourselves as I am this body, the body that we take to be ourselves, we never experience ourselves as a dead body. It's always a living body. So there's the, the physical form of the body and the life, the prana. So, and we never experience ourselves as a sleeping body. It's always a body that seems to be awake. Even in dream, the body that we take to be ourselves seems to be awake. So, in, in a body that's awake, there's a mind, intellect, and will functioning in it. So, we never experience ourselves as any of these five sheaths without experiencing ourselves as all five of them. So, when Bhagavan says, ego is that which is aware of itself as I am this body, within that term body, he includes all these five sheaths. Why we are not aware of what we actually are? Because we mistake ourselves to be this body. This yes. body composed of five sheaths. So long as we are aware of ourselves as I am this body, we're not aware of ourselves as what as we actually are. And only when we're aware of ourselves as I am this body are we consequently aware of other things. In waking, we're aware of ourselves as this particular body. Consequently, we're aware of this world. In dream, we're aware of ourselves as some other body, and consequently, we're aware of some other world. In sleep, we are not aware of ourselves as any body, and therefore we are not aware of any world. So it's only in the view of ego, that which is aware of itself as I am this body, but this world seems to exist. So when we are told to investigate ourselves, we first need to understand that we are not what we seem to be. Now we seem to be this body and mind, but this is not what we actually are. In order to what we actually, in order to investigate ourselves, we at least need to have a, a a clear conceptual understanding of what we actually are. We are not any phenomenon. We are not anything that appears and disappears. We are the, that basic awareness. I am. We are not this ego that is aware of itself as I am. This body, because its ego appears in waking and dream, it disappears in sleep. But though ego is absent in sleep, we exist there and we know our existence there. I slept. We know very clearly we were in a state in which we were not aware of anything. But to, in order to know that we were in that state, we must have been aware of being in that state. So what we are aware of in sleep, we are not aware of anything. We are just aware I am. In other words, we're aware of our own existence, but our existence obviously isn't an object of awareness. We we are just, just pure self-awareness, awareness that knows nothing other than itself. So that is what we actually are. So what we have to investigate is this fundamental awareness I am. 
So all the, the philosophy that Bhagavan teaches us, it all has a... But Bhagavan doesn't teach us any unnecessary philosophy. The philosophy Bhagavan teaches us is extremely practical. So if we come across a teaching of Bhagavan, and it seems to us this is just a this is just some philosophy, it's nothing, it's got no relevance to me. We haven't understood it correctly. Because if we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, we will understand how these what is the practical implication of all this philosophy that he's teaching us. So a lot of Uludunapdu may seem to be abstract philosophical principles. But if we understand them correctly, they're they're of they're of great practical significance. Mm -hmm. If we want to know ourselves, understanding these principles is a great aid to helping us to understand firstly how to investigate ourselves, and secondly, what to expect. We're not looking for anything new. That is, people say, I I, I, when I investigate myself, I experience peace, I experience this, or I get headaches, or I get all... People describe all sorts of experiences and say, am I doing it right? We are First thing we need to understand, any experience appears and disappears. It's therefore something other than ourselves. So we are not looking for any experience. We, we are looking for the reality underlying the experiencer. That is, we as ego are the experiencer. But this ego is not what we actually are. What we actually are is the underlying awareness I am. Ego is the adjunct mixed awareness I am this body. In that adjunct mixed awareness I am this body, what is real is only that fundamental awareness I am. The adjuncts, the body, is unreal. It's something that comes and goes. What, what remains, what is permanent, is only I am. So, earlier we were talking about Bhagavan's definition of reality. So, what in our experience is eternal, unchanging, and self-shining? The only thing is I am. Our, fund, our own existence, our fundamental awareness, I am, that is what... Because in... In waking state, we're aware I am. In uh, we let's say in waking state, we exist and we are aware of our existence as I am. In dream, we exist and are aware of our existence as I am. In sleep, we exist and are aware of our existence as I am. So this uh, this existence awareness, such it, but ever shines as I am. This is what is permanent. It is also unchanging. Oh, no, no, I've changed so much. Um, 60 years ago, I was a small boy running around uh, playing games, and now I'm an old man with a long gray beard. So I've changed so much. Yes, the, the body that we take ourselves to be has changed. The mind has changed. But the one thing that hasn't changed, that little boy who was running around 60 years ago uh, was aware of itself as I am. This old man with a grey beard is also aware of itself as I am. So what is the one thing that is constant in the midst of everything in this world is changing? As Buddha said, anitya, anitya, sarvam anitya. Impermanent, impermanent, everything is impermanent, except for one thing. 
we ourselves are the permanent thing. That is, our existence is permanent. I existed then. I existed over 60 years between. I exist now. And I will always exist because existence, that which exists can never not exist. That which, which comes into existence and ceases to exist and doesn't actually exist at all. So the one thing that is permanent is our own existence. And our existence is that awareness I am. That which exists is, is, I, is, is that awareness that is always aware of itself as I am. That is, existence and awareness are one and the same thing. As Bhagavan says in Upadesha Undia, in verse um, 23 of Upadesha Undia, because of the non-existence of any awareness other than what exists, other than Uladu, to know Uladu, Uladu is awareness. What, what is the logic there? That is, if, ex if awareness were other than what exists, it would be a non-existent awareness. So awareness cannot be some... The awareness that knows ex what exists cannot be something other than what exists. So mm -hmm. what exists itself is awareness, and that awareness exists as we. In other words, we ourselves are that which exists and that which is aware. Mm -hmm. But the awareness Bhagavan is talking about here is not awareness of things, because awareness of things comes and goes. It's not even that which is aware of things, because what is aware of things, of phenomena, is ego, which comes and goes. He's talking about the permanent awareness, the existence awareness, such it, I am. So, this, this fundamental awareness I am, is what exists permanently, it's unchanging, and it shines by its own light. Mm -hmm. That is, we don't need anything else to know that we exist. We are so for the awareness but by which we know our existence. So we, are, we, we, we alone fit all three definitions of reality. We are permanent, we are unchanging, and we are self-shining. That's not this, not we as this person, or we as this ego that takes this person to be ourself. We as we actually are, our pure existence, our pure awareness, that is what is real. So this is, though this may superficially seem to be abstract philosophy, it's actually extremely practical, because if we think about this and understand what Bhagavan is saying there, we clearly see, yes, I'm always existing, I'm always shining. So holding on to myself is not difficult. People say, oh, I, I'm not able to do this self-inquiry, I can't find this I. Because they haven't thought deeply about it. If we read Uludu Napadu and think deeply about what Bhagavan is saying there, it is very, very clear what is the practice of self-investigation. It is just attending to that ever-shining existence I am. Ever-shining means ever-self-aware existence I am. So all that Bhagavan teaches us in Oludunapadu is extremely practical. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, there are, Bhagavan's teachings are, uh, are within, are, how to say that, are, are Advaita, yes. Advaita yes. philosophy. 
and um, which is getting more and more popular nowadays. Yes, and, but um, I can see that there but are. We 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 shouldn't be. We shouldn't just go by labels. There are so oh. many people who claim to be Advaitins. Yeah, but, no, but I, I when they say... open their mouth, you can see that they are not Advaitin. Yeah. Because Advaita means one only without a second. That is, there are many forms of monism. Monism means any philosophy that says all is ultimately one is monism. So even materialism is a form of monism because it says everything is physical. So all the, the, there's only one thing that exists, and that's physical things. So that's a form of monism, but it's not a dwaita because they think this this material things have many different forms, and all those forms are real. There are many, even in the even, for example, Kashmir Shaivism cl claims to be a dwaita, claims to be a form of a dwaita. In fact, I've heard some Kashmir Shaivites saying theirs is a purer form of Advaita than this Advaita Vedanta. But it is not real Advaita because according to Kashmir Shaivism, the world is real. If you have more than one thing that is real, how can it be Advaita? Advaita means there's one only without a second. And what is that one? We are that. And even in the classical what is generally called classical Advaita, or some people nowadays like to call traditional Advaita or traditional Vedanta, there's so many different understandings of Advaita. What Bhagavan has given us is Advaita in its purest, simplest, and most practical form. So there are many things you you, you can, if you read books like um, Vedanta Sara and so many other books, which are considered as primary textbooks if you're going to study uh, Advaita, they're full of so many ideas that are completely unnecessary. Un unnecessarily, they complicate things. What can be simpler than one only without a second? So, why should we complicate it? What is the basic contention of Advaita is there's one only without a second. Then how to explain all this multiplicity, this plurality? It's all, according to Advaita, it's all vivata, it's all a, an illusory appearance. It, it doesn't, it's a mere appearance. Bhagavan, even this teaching Bhagavan makes more practical, he says, yes, it's all an appearance. To whom does it appear? It doesn't appear in the view of pure awareness. It appears only in the view of ourself as ego. So ego is the root of all this appearance of multiplicity. Get rid of ego, and what remains is what always exists, namely one only without a second. Mm -hmm. So just because someone claims some system of philosophy claims to be Advaitic, or some uh, nowadays there are so many teachers who claim they're teaching Advaita, but they're not teaching Advaita at all. They've got their own um, half-baked understanding of what Advaita actually is. If we want Advaita in its purest and most practical form, Bhagavan's teachings alone fit the bill. Because what is the use of Advaita if it's not practical? What's the use of any philosophy if it's not practical? So the, the, 
many of the classical Advaitins, they may be very learned, they may have studied so many all the Upanishads, Brahma Sutra, Bhagavad Gita, so many commentaries on them, they may be able to give long learned lectures, but do they have any idea what the actual practice is? It seems not. If you listen to them closely, they, they, they don't really know what the practice is. They don't even know what the goal is. A very popular view among, um, among the classical Advaitins is though the term manonasa is often used, manonasa means destruction of mind, there are many uh, classical Advaitins who say, but it's not really, it doesn't, it's, though it's called Manonasa, it doesn't, it's not really Manonasa, mind cannot be destroyed. But according to Bhagavan, the whole goal is the destruction of mind, because mind is the problem. Mind means, it, the root of the mind is ego. If you get rid of ego, you get rid of the mind. And so, and ego is nothing but a false awareness of ourself. So without getting, without manonasa, you cannot know what you actually are, or you cannot know what you actually are without it thereby resulting in manonasa. So if you really want to know, understand Advaita, Bhagavan's teachings are the only way. But merely, under, merely studying Bhagavan's teachings, it gives us a clear conceptual understanding, but that is not what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. We, we need to have a, a, a conceptual understanding is useful only to the extent to which we apply it in practice. So the real understanding, the real clarity comes only from the actual practice of Atmavichara, turning the mind within and uh, sinking back and merging into the light of pure awareness that we actually are, which is the source for which we have risen as ego. Mm -hmm. So only when we lose ourselves completely can we be said to have understood Bhagavan's teachings or Advaita. Yeah, and with ourself you mean ego. Yeah. 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 So for me, the, the principle one only without a second is pretty profound it is start, extremely profound <laughs> you start thinking about it because yeah. you already said um and in, in who who am i and that the question was asked who am i and, and bhagavan answered with you are pure consciousness yes and the nature of that is satchitananda yes and and the same thing is only uh, it's also it's one only without a second but, but that when he says in the seventh paragraph what actually exists is only atmasarupa there are many ways of saying only in Tamil. He could yeah. have said, Yatatmai Uludu Atmasarupa May. That that suffix A would imply only, but he he to make it absolutely clear what he's talking about, he said Andre. Andre is an extremely emphatic way of saying only. Yeah. So we alone are what actually exist. So yeah. we are one without a second. Yeah. But what I nowadays see um, is an interpretation that people, some people, tend to say, and we are, we are, we ourselves are pure consciousness. But yes. they translate it as everything is pure consciousness. Yes. Um, but that's still seen from a subject-object reality. So long as there's everything, you're still in ignorance. Yeah. Because so everything is is un unreal. The only, the only thing that is real is that one that alone actually exists. 
As Bhagavan says in verse 13 of Urunaptu, Jnana mam tane me. Oneself alone, who is Jnana, is real. Jnana means pure awareness. So what, what is real, what actually exists, is only ourself as pure awareness. Yes. Where, where there is no subject-object appearance. There's no subject-object, yeah. This, so, so I think I read that in Guru Fuchaka Kofai. I, I tried to look the verse up, but I couldn't find it so yeah. quickly. That as long as you experience yourself as a subject, experiencing objects, yes. you can take that as that ego and the false awareness of I am this body is still present. Is that true? Absolutely. I don't know whether, I mean, that's the clear implication. If we read Uludunapdu, we will be left in no doubt about whether that yeah. is what Bhagavan is saying. Yeah. Because he says it in so many different ways. Yeah. That's so, another very important thing. When we rework Psycholudunapdu, we are we shouldn't be just looking for the meaning because there's far more to the verses than the surface meaning because there's a huge amount of implication in what bhagavan is saying and to get the full implication we we when we when we read one verse we can understand its meaning we can understand some of its implication but when we read all together more and more implications become clear to us Mm -hmm. So it's not what Bhagavan, just what Bhagavan says or writes, it's what Bhagavan implies in what he says and writes. Mm -hmm. Gurvachaka Kovai is a very nice work. Murugan has recorded so many important teachings of Bhagavan there. But all the most important teachings of Uludunapadu, oh, sorry, of Gurvachaka, in Gurvachaka Kovai, are there in seed form in works like Uludunapadu. Mm -hmm. If we understand Nuludu Napadu, all these things like what you just said, that is clearly implied in Nuludu Napadu. Yes. Yeah. And well, also in the book now, because I used your explanations yeah. to, 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 to make that clear, of course, that, that in, people can have that right understanding. Yes. Yeah. In Murugana um, wrote a... a um, a Pairam verse, Thaksharam, like it's yeah. everyone sings it at the beginning. Tarunaruna mani kirana valini tarumakshara mana mahil male. There he refers to Bhagavan as Muni. And in his commentary on that verse, Murugan's com commentary on his own verse, he explains what Muni means. He says Muni means manana silan, one who is an expert in manana. Manana means thinking deeply about these things, extracting the implication, not just the meaning, but the implication from it. So Murugana attaches so much importance to that power of manana. And Bhagavan also. Why? why the verses of Uludranapadu, the meaning is often, we have to, we, we, you can't just skim through Uludranapadu and understand it. Some verses, like in verse 20, Bhagavan uses the word tan, which means oneself, repeatedly in that verse. But he uses it in the same sentence. He's using tan to refer to oneself as ego and oneself as one actually is. In other words, ourself as ego and ourself as we actually are. He said, uh, oneself, the source of oneself. So we need to. 
when we read such verses, we need to think very carefully what he is referring to. What does he mean by saying oneself the source of oneself? How can oneself be the source of oneself? Oneself, what we actually are, is the source of ego, which is what we now seem to be. So we we need to we we need to become manana silan, that is one who is expert in manana. But how can we become expert in manana? We cannot become expert in manana just by reading these and thinking about them. To gain the real skill in manana, we need to put this into practice. Because it's only by going within that we gain the clarity that is required in order to understand the deeper implications. So becoming a manana silan is the result not only of manana, but also of the actual practice, the niditi asana. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, let me see for, for another question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think this is a, this is a, I actually have two important questions, but one question I wanted to ask is, you say that his teachings are extremely simple. Yes. Um, and he, he says it, well, he says it in a different way, of course. He says yeah. in Atma Fideya, it's extremely simple. However, many people uh, do not experience it as simple. So could you please explain why it is simple yeah. and why we, we do not experience it like that? Well, we can use simple in two different senses. What he's talking about in Anma Vide, it's very easy. So it's simple in the sense of easy. Okay. Um, but the first meaning of simple is it is simple. It is, it is lack of complication. So what can be simpler than one only without a second? And now that that one appears as many, but Bhagavan explains it to the appearance of many in very simple terms. The many appears only in the view of ourself as ego. So the root cause for the appearance of many is ego. So he, he, he's, um, in philosophical terms, we can say Bhagavan is the ultimate reductionist. <clears throat> he reduces all phenomena down to the Knower of a phenomena, that is, the phenomena exist only in the view of ego. So the phenomena have no existence independent of ego. Mm -hmm. And ego is just a false awareness of ourself. So ego is that false awareness, I am this body. What is real in ego is only I am. So uh, that is, all phenomena get reduced, all, all objects get reduced to the subject. But the objects of phenomena of any kind whatsoever, the subject is ego, and ego gets reduced to the pure awareness that we actually are. So ultimately, there is only that pure awareness, one only without a second. But if you read other, if you read classical Advaita, unnecessarily they complicate it about when God, when Brahman is united with Maya, he becomes Ishwara, and Ishwara creates this, and out of this element, he creates this element. Oh, it's all a big headache. <laughs> yeah. 
a lot, so much unnecessary philosophy has um, has got mixed up with Advaita. Advaita, but that is the proposition of Advaita is the simplest proposition there is. What exists is one only without a second. If such is the case, why to complicate it unnecessarily? Okay, there's one only without second, but how come it appears as so many? In, to whom does it appear as many? Bhagavan says, to me, to this e me as ego. In, in, in sleep, we don't rise as ego, so we're not aware of the appearance of many. In, in sleep, all we are aware of is I am, one only without a second. But in waking and dream, we rise as ego, and all this multiplicity seems to exist. So the root cause of all multiplicity is our rising as ego. We seem to be ego only so long as we're looking elsewhere. So long as we're looking at other things, we seem to be ego. If we turn our attention back to ourselves to see who am I, this ego, there's no such thing as ego to be found. What, what the underlying reality is only for pure awareness. So if we look at ego, what we will see is not ego, but only pure awareness. If you, if you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, if you look at that snake carefully to find out what's, what variety of snake is it, what will you find out? It's not a snake at all, it's only a rope. Likewise, if we look at ego, we will find that what it actually is is pure awareness. When ego thereby dissolves back into pure awareness, the source from which it arose, everything else that appears only in the view of ego will also dissolve along with it, and what will then remain is the one thing that actually exists, namely pure awareness, which is what we actually are. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Have, I can't remember now what your question is, but I hope I've answered it. Well, the question was, uh, it, his teachings are so extremely simple. Oh, yeah. Why, yeah. why oh, is it so oh, simple? Yeah. Why do we not experience it? Okay, like that? that is one sense. In Simple in the sense of not complicated, they're extremely simple. But one thing, just because they're simple doesn't mean everyone can understand them. Because our minds are very complicated. We have so many preconceived ideas and notions. So long as we, and unless we are willing to ditch, to jettison all our previously uh, cherished beliefs and assumptions and everything, we will not be able to understand Bhagavan. Mm -hmm. Because through, so long as we are holding on to our old beliefs and assumptions, we will not be able to see Bhagavan's teachings as they actually are. So but the reason so many people are not able to understand Bhagavan's teachings is not because Bhagavan's teachings are complicated. Bhagavan's teachings are extremely simple. Our minds are complicated. And so our complicated minds are not able to recognize, are not able to clearly see the simplicity that lies in Bhagavan's teachings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's one sense in which Bhagavan's teachings are simple. So though they are very simple, they're also very deep and very subtle. We shouldn't imagine that, oh, because they're simple, it's very easy to understand them. No, we need years of careful study, careful manana, and most important of all, practice, because the, his teachings will become clear to us only to the extent to which we put them into practice. 
So they're simple, but that doesn't mean but it that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy for us to understand them correctly. We can understand them correctly only to the extent to which we actually put them into practice. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Simple also has another meaning. In that we talk about something being simple if it's easy. Bhagavan's teachings are also very easy because all we have to do is to turn our attention back to ourselves. But the one thing that we know more clearly than any other thing is our own existence, I am. Whatever else we may know, we always know I am. So attending to I am is not difficult. However, for many people, it seems to be difficult because they don't think deeply enough about Bhagavan's teachings and they don't, they're not able to grasp what he's saying. If we really think about what he's saying, about but we alone are what is permanent, unchanging, and self-shining. I'm just saying that as one example. If we yeah. think deeply about that and grasp what he is saying, it is clear the one thing that is self-shining, the one thing that is ever shining by its own light, is our own existence. So the one thing we know more clearly than we know anything else is our own existence. When Vivekananda asked Ramakrishna, have you seen God? R Ramakrishna said, yes. And then he said, I'm seeing God more clearly than I'm seeing you. Mm. If Beautiful. we interpret that yeah. in terms of Bhagavan's teachings, God is that which is shining in our heart as I. Yeah. The one thing we're seeing more clearly than any other thing is our own existence. Mm -hmm. But we overlook that because our minds are so outward going. So for many people whose minds are extremely outward going, they, they find it difficult to understand even what it means to be self-attentive, even what it means to attend only to our own being, to hold on to our own being. Mm -hmm. So though it's extremely simple, unless you understand it properly, it will seem something very obscure and very... Um, I can't, I can't find the eye, so many people say. If they just think about what they're saying, they should see the absurdity of it. Yeah. I can't find the eye. Even great, this isn't just um, people with little, limited understanding who are saying, even, even great philosophers have said exactly the same. One of the one of the most renowned Western philosophers is David Hume. And one of the most famous passages in one of his works is a paragraph in which he says, I cannot find any self in me. I cannot find any self in any such thing called self in myself. Yeah. If you, if you read that paragraph in the light of Bhagavan's teachings, yeah. it's absurd. He said, when I look within, all I can see is a constant flow of perceptions. Mm -hmm. But who is the I who is seeing that constant flow of perceptions? That mm -hmm. is the self he should be looking for. But he's looking for self outside himself. So of course he cannot find it. So mm -hmm. even the even so-called brilliant philosophers, and he's not the only one who's fooled by this. So many philosophers write about this and, and consider this as a great passage of philosophy. They even, even philosophers who say there's no such thing as self. And they, they use, they, they cite the argument given by David Hume as an example. But the very absurdity of it, 
Yes. I mean, yes. seen through a clear sight of Bhagavan's teachings, what yes. David Hume is saying there is absurd. But yes. this is the problem when the mind is very outgoing, we overlook the obvious. So Bhagavan's teachings are extremely simple. It is extremely easy to attend to ourselves, but we need to grasp what it means to attend to ourselves. And once we have grasped what it actually means to attend to ourselves, does it then become very easy? It is always easy, but it still seems difficult. Why? Because we are unwilling to attend to ourselves. Because as ego, we as ego depend for our very existence as ego upon grasping things other than ourselves. Ego cannot rise, stand, or flourish without grasping form, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludhunapatu. So the very nature of ego is to be constantly grasping form. So until we as ego are willing to surrender ourselves completely, until we're willing to put our head on the chopping block, we, though we may want to attend to ourselves, our desire not to attend to ourselves is far greater than our love to attend to ourselves in practice. This is something we will all find when we actually try to put this into practice. But that doesn't mean that attending to ourselves is difficult. It means that we're reluctant to attend to ourselves. A, a simple analogy I give for this supposing you've got a sharp knife and a watermelon, you can very easily cut the watermelon with a sharp knife. Even though the watermelon has got a hard shell, the sharp knife easily cuts through that. So if it's so easy to cut a watermelon with that sharp knife, it should be equally easy to cut our throat with this uh, um, sharp knife. Actually, it is very easy to cut our throat, but can any of us do it? No, because we're not willing to do it. So it's for exactly the same reason that this self-investigation seems difficult. It's our own reluctance is the problem. We are not yet, we don't yet have all-consuming love to surrender ourselves completely. And we cannot investigate ourselves without surrendering ourselves. That is, to the extent to which we investigate ourselves, to the extent to which we go deep within, we are thereby surrendering ourselves. Mm -hmm. So without that all-consuming, wholehearted love to uh, surrender ourselves completely, we this path will seem difficult. But though it seems difficult, it is not difficult. It is extremely easy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And once you kind of are completely convinced about the truth of Bhagavan's teachings, yeah. It's also the only path that's... It's the only path, yes, yes, yes. Path. Yeah. 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 All the other paths all have their own place, at their own level. But mm -hmm. ultimately, whatever other path we must follow, we must eventually come to this path. Yeah. Because the, the reality is ourself. We are self of a reality. So to know what is real, we need to attend to ourself. Mm -hmm. Any spiritual practice other than self in uh, other than atma vichara entails attending to something other than ourselves so long as we're attending to something other than ourselves we are nourishing and sustaining ego so if you want to surrender ego 
the only way is to attend to ourselves. Yeah, subside. Yeah, because yeah. the very nature of ego is to is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping things other than itself. So mm. the only way to dissolve back into its source is to grasp, try to grasp itself. Mm -hmm. Even trying to stop grasping other things is not sufficient. Because every night when we fall asleep, we stop grasping other things because we're too tired to continue grasping. So we stop grasping, we subside. But we subside in manolaya, in a temporary, that's a temporary dissolution of mind, mm -hmm. temporary dissolution of ego. To bring about the permanent dissolution of ego, the only means is to hold on to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then we knowingly subside into our source. Mm -hmm. Because I can then also logically infer that as long as we have not annihilated ego, mm. even even the death of this body is is monoleia because it will grasp yeah, the yeah. and then well we uh, we it's either monoleia or go straight into a dream. Yeah, that is when the body dies, we may go into a sleep-like state or into a dream-like state. Doesn't mm -hmm. matter really which, because <laughs> so long as the dreamer is there, the dreaming will continue. Mm -hmm. There'll be periods of sleep, but the dreaming will continue. Mm -hmm. The dreamer is ego. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I must say, becoming aware of the three states and, and of course, uh, an atmosphere which goes beyond the three states that yes. was really 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 illuminating for me yes yes and it's it's also a, a, a central teachings in how Bhagavan explains yes, things yes and it's, it's also coming back a lot in in this book in how you write and talk about it of course yeah 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 um the question uh, you said it's important to attend to yourself so I am attending to myself Mm. So there's an I who is attending to myself. Isn't that dualistic? No. Because I and myself are one and the same. Mm -hmm. they're, not two, they're not two things. I attending to myself. There's mm -hmm. only one thing. That I attend to myself means I attend to I. Mm -hmm. I attend to me. <laughs> I, me and myself are, all, are just are different forms of the same first person pronoun. There's mm -hmm. only one first person. So mm -hmm. what is to attend is ego. What it is to attend to is itself. So there's no duality there. Attending to anything other than ourself is duality. So if you want an Advaita Abhyasa, an Advaita practice, the only Advaita practice can be self-attention. Because any other practice, you're attending to something other than yourself. Or yes. you're going into layer, you're going yeah. into a state called uh, Nivikalpa Samadhi, which is just, as Bhagavan clarified, it's just a state of manolaya. It's of no yeah. use. So I, I attending to itself, or yes. I attending to myself, is, is the same, I could also say, as awareness being aware of itself? Yes. Except we don't refer to ourselves as awareness, no, do we? No, but I'm now <laughs> using is... some popular words that yes, yes, are out yes, there. Yes. Yeah. I know, but these popular words often uh, yeah. lead people away, away from the, the point. 
Well, I'm saying it so that it, if they recognize that, it yeah, 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 I am okay, returning okay. to myself. Huh? I, I, yes, but yeah. I'm saying it for a particular reason because people often say, oh, awareness watching awareness. Oh, yeah. What do they mean by that? Yeah. That is, what is the natural name of awareness? What is aware is always aware of itself as I. Yeah. So I is the natural name of awareness. That's why Bhagavan said the first name of God is I. Yeah. That is the natural name of God. Bhagavan said, I is the elder brother, Om, Om which is considered the, the most, the ultimate name of God. Bhagavan said, no, I is beyond that. Yeah. Or that beautiful phrase in the Bible yeah. refer to I am that I am. I, yes, yes. Yeah. But even that is understood by people in so many different ways. Yes. How it's to be understood in terms of Bhagavan's teachings is, I am is what I am. Yeah, yeah. That's also how And I that understood. is clearly yeah. implied there by the next sentence. God says to Moses, say I am has sent you. So he's referring to himself as uh, I am is his name. Yeah. Because what is God? God is pure existence. And existence is never, the existence of other things is not real existence because mm -hmm. other things seem to exist only in the view of ego. But real existence is always the first person existence. Mm -hmm. So existence in its pure form is I am. Mm -hmm. And also Uladu. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Now we're around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is Uladu is I am alone is Uladu. I am yeah. alone is what actually exists. Yeah. Because Inspires. all other things exist yeah. in the view only of ego. So yeah. they're dependent upon ego for their seeming existence. And that is divine. The only thing that exists independent of ego, the only thing that exists in the absence of ego, we can see from our own experience, ego is absent in sleep. What remains? Only I am. So I am is Brahman. There's no, there's no such thing as Brahman other than I am. Mm -hmm. And That's I, the meaning yes. of Aham Brahmasmi. Yeah, I am. That's the meaning of Shivaham, Soham. Mm -hmm. They're all pointing out, I am is the thing. Mm -hmm. I am is what is real. Mm -hmm. And what's simpler than I am? Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you you told about the ultimate, you told about being, being as you actually are. Mm. And um, in daily life, I'm a therapist, and I, a lot of therapists and coaches and so are working on the level of be who you be who you are. Uh, but with my understanding of Bhagavan's teachings, that's still on the level of the ego. Uh, I am this body. I am this or that. Yeah. Could you please explain and talk about why it's so profoundly important to know who you truly are? So long as we. Do as we do not know what we truly are, we mistake ourselves to be something other than what we truly are. That is, we mistake ourselves to be a person. So long as we mistake ourselves to be a person, we experience constant dissatisfaction. That is, we are constantly seeking something. We're constantly seeking more happiness. Whatever we, wherever we think happiness lies we go seeking for happiness in those places but we are never never satisfied 
or I'm, I'm very poor. So if I have more money, then I'll be happy. I see people who have, who have more money than me, and they, they, they have all that I would want. So if I have more money, then I'll be happy. We get more money, and we're still not satisfied. No, I need more money, because though I've got, now got um, $1,000, this $1,000 can go very quickly. So I need to have $10,000. And when we get our $10,000, we're still not satisfied. We need 100,000, we need a million. It goes on. If we have hundreds of billions, we are still craving for mon more money. We can see it in this world. So money is just one example. The same with anything you want to achieve. Supposing you want to be an expert, um, a sports person, a footballer or a tennis player or a cricketer or um a long distance runner or something you're always trying to get some do something better achieve some higher goal uh, if you if you want to be very learned if you want to know more and more the, the desire for knowledge will never be satisfied however much you study however much you um in any field whether it's science or history or geography or philosophy or whatever it is they we are never satisfied with what we know. We all want to know something. We may seek sensual pleasures, but the sensual pleasures never satisfy us. They may give us momentary satisfaction, but then we want more, we want more, we want more. So if we look at our life objectively, if we look at our life realistically, it is clear we are never truly satisfied. In fact, if we analyze deeply, every movement of our mind is driven by dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. If we were truly satisfied, we would just subside back within. But every outward going movement of our mind, we are seeking something. We're seeking some diversion, we're seeking some, um, some pleasure here or there or whatever it may be, every single movement of our mind. So, the very nature of the very the very state of ego is a state of dissatisfaction and there's a reason for this because our real nature is infinite happiness infinite satisfaction so nothing less than infinite satisfaction will satisfy us so as ego we have limited ourselves so we can never experience infinite satisfaction so long as we ourselves are limited so the infinite satisfaction or infinite happiness that we are seeking, that alone will satisfy us. And since that is our real nature, we can, as Bhagavan says in the first sentence of Nana, in the final quote, in order to attain that happiness which is one's own real nature, oneself knowing oneself is necessary. For that, the, the awareness investigation, who am I, alone is the principal means. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but you, you could, you, if you think about it, you can also, if you understand Bhagavan's teachings, you can also see that uh, as long as you experience duality, so impermanence of, of the objects, everything yeah. that gives happiness eventually has to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, even if it's with the, with, the, with the death of this body. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. Uh, However much happiness we may achieve in this life, it's very fleeting. Yeah. Nothing lasts. Yeah. 
as Buddha said, anitya, anitya, sarvam, anitya, everything is impermanent, except for one thing, ourself. Yeah. Buddha, so, Buddha that, didn't that, add that, but Bhagavan added that. Yeah. <laughs> That's, of course, a huge incentive for in following this path, of course. Yeah, huh? yes. Eternal or infinite happiness that we truly are. Yeah. And infinite yeah. happiness means eternal. Yes, anything yeah, that's limited yeah. by time is not infinite and unchanging, of yeah, course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, there was an interesting uh question on the QA channel. I, I asked that question, hmm. uh, I already kind of thought was the answer, but your, your answer was kind of affir affirming what I already hmm. thought. Uh, what I wanted to uh, ask uh, on on that YouTube video of on the Q and A channel of if I'm not aware of someone or something in a waking state, it does not exist at this moment. One person re uh, responds with, "This is a difficult concept for me to get the mind around, but I sense it is important to grasp." Is there any video I can reference for a deeper discussion on this? Well, I don't at this moment can out of my head say say this video you have to watch. But then I thought. It, um, is it possible to answer, to give a deeper clarification about that using one verse of uh, Uladu Nakudu? So uh, nothing exists if you don't think about it. Yes. Um, there are so many verses of Uladu Nakudu, but um, in which that is implied. Um, that is that that is a lot of things in Uludunapadu. It may not be said explicitly, but we need to extrapolate and draw out the implications. For example, verse four: If oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? From this, we have to infer. The appearance of the world and God as a multitude of forms depends upon our experiencing ourselves as a form. So when we do not experience ourselves as a form, those forms do not exist. So the, the forms depend upon, the, the appearance of forms depends upon our mistaking ourselves to be one among those forms. So from this we can extrapolate, that means Everything that we know depends upon the knower. So when we're not knowing it, then it is not known. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't exist. It has no existence independent of our knowledge of it. Mm -hmm. That if we say something exists independent of our knowledge of it, we've then got things that exist independent of ego. Mm -hmm. So we then get we 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 then get into the realm of duality. Mm -hmm. If everything, as Advaita says, if everything is just a false appearance, a false appearance cannot exist except in the view of, of, of something. Mm -hmm. That is, an appearance implies something in whose view it appears. This is why the, the modern philosophers, people like Daniel Dennett, who say when consciousness is an illusion, it's patently absurd. Because there must be consciousness in order to experience an illusion. Mm -hmm. There can't be an illusion in the absence of consciousness. So mm -hmm. consciousness, 
everything known by consciousness can be an illusion, mm -hmm. but consciousness itself cannot be an illusion. Mm -hmm. Of course, what <clears throat> ego, which is that which is aware of all these other things, is an illusion. But what is an illusion is what ego takes itself to be. The underlying reality of ego, the pure awareness, is not an illusion. So, um, to say that something exists, I mean, why do we say that anything exists? Generally, people say this world exists. People accept that the world exists. But what evidence do we have for the existence of the world or for any, the existence of any particular thing in this world? In Paris, there's a, a tall uh, iron structure called the Eiffel Tower. What evidence do we have for that? Mm -hmm. Because we know it. We may have been to Paris and seen it, or we may have seen it in films, or we may have read about it in books, or we may have seen pictures of it, or we may just have not even seen it. We don't even know what it looks like, but we've heard there's a this uh, tower called the Eiffel Tower. If we hadn't even heard of it, then what evidence we have we for its existence? It's only we as we take things to exist because they have, in one way or other, entered our awareness. The Big Bang. None of us were around when the Big Bang occurred, the supposed Big Bang that happened so many billions of years ago. None of us were around. But scientists have inferred the existence of this Big Bang from all their other observations. But where does the Big Bang exist, except in our mind? What evidence do we have that, that, that the Big Bang exists, except for this idea? And the scientists was, oh, no, no, we've got so much evidence, because we inferred the existence of this event, the Big Bang, from such and such and such, so, many, so much data we have from which they inferred that. But it's still only in their own mind. Mm -hmm. The data from which they inferred that is in their own mind. So everything is mind-dependent. All our knowledge of anything other than ourselves is mind-dependent, because it's only in the mind that all these things... So, to say that something exists independent of the mind is something that... It, it's, we're believing in something for which they... Not only for which we have no evidence, for which we never can have any evidence. Right. So, it's not... Though the question you ask is about a particular thing, if I don't think about a particular thing, does it exist? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the reason for saying it doesn't exist is because of the underlying principle, but the only reason we have to suppose that anything exists is the fact that we're aware of it. Mm -hmm. We become aware of it in some way or other. We don't, may not be directly aware of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of us are directly aware of the Big Bang, mm -hmm. but most of us have heard about it, we've read about it, and because it's um, uh, the cutting-edge science or whatever, it's the latest theory in science or one, of the, one among the many latest theories in science, until later on, mo most theories in science we know, if you look at the history of science, what was, what was taken to be um, uh, cutting-edge science, generally accepted science in the past, later is found to be 
not correct. And they have to revise their theories, but revise their theories. So science is not, is, is not stable knowledge. Science is built on their ever-shifting sands of, of new evidence. And new evidence comes and it disproves old theories. So we need to develop new theories. And those new theories stand until the sand of the evidence starts shifting. So all knowledge depends upon the mind. Bhagavan said this most clearly in, um, but again, we need to understand. If we just read the words, we won't understand. We need to understand what underlies it. Verse 9 of Uladunapadu. Bhagavan says, dyads and triads exist uh, uh, clinging to one, is literal meaning. What does he mean by that? Firstly, what are dyads and triads? Dyads, in that case, means pairs of opposites. Existence, non-existence, knowledge, ignorance, uh, life, death, happiness, unhappiness, all pairs of opposites. Uh, uh, or what are collectively referred to there as irritegal. That means we can say pairs or, di or dyads. Dyads is a nice word because it matches with triads, so it's convenient to translate it as dyads and triads. But dyads and triads can mean so many different things. In this context, dyads means pairs of opposites. And triads, uh, the Tamil word Bhagavan used is muputi, which is a Tamil form of a Sanskrit term, triputi. Triputi is a particular philosophical concept that is all knowledge of things other than ourselves involves three factors the knower, the thing that is known, and the means of knowing it. I see this computer screen. Mm -hmm. I am the knower. The computer screen is what is known. And the means by which I know it is by seeing it. But there are so many means by which we know things. None of us have seen the Big Bang, but we know about the Big Bang. Why do it? How do we know about the Big Bang? Because we trust the scientists who have come up with that. So uh, we have the testimony of science. Tesu who tell us that so many billions of years ago, there was this event, the Big Bang. So because we trust the, the findings of science until the findings of science change, which will happen in due course, inevitably, uh, but for the time being, we trust the findings of science. So we, we accept, yes, there's a big bang. So there's so many means of knowing. We can know either by direct perception, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, uh, smelling. That's one, that's one set of ways in which we can know things. We can know things by logical inference. One plus one equals two, two plus two equals four. We, we, all these, this, this is by logic we understand these things. Um, if all men are mortal, and if Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. By, by, by logical and deduction, we can understand things. We can understand things by, um, because we read it in the newspapers, we see it on the television. There's so many ways of, there's so many means of knowing. But everything that is known, there must be a knower, something that is known, and some means of knowing it. So these three are called the triputi, the three factors of objective knowledge. If we consider this, these three factors, everything that is known depends upon the means of knowing it. That is, we couldn't know anything 
if we didn't have a means of knowing it. So what is known depends upon the means of knowing it. And both what is known and the means of knowing it depend upon the knower. Without a knower, there couldn't be any means of knowing and there couldn't be anything known. So everything that is known depends upon the, the means of knowing it. And everything that, uh, both the, what is known and the means of knowing it depend upon the knower. So when Bhagavan says the triad, this triad depends upon one thing, what is that one thing? It is the knower. And the dyads also, existence, non-existence, uh, light, darkness, happiness, unhappiness, life, death, all these things are known to whom? To me. So they are things that are known. So they also depend upon this one thing, the knower, namely ego. So if we think of it in that term, if something isn't known, does it exist? How can anyone answer that question? To say that it's, it's always better to limit... Um, David Hume said one nice thing, the wise man apportions his belief according to uh, evidence. So if you have no evidence that something exists, why should you believe it exists? So the only evidence we have that the world exists is because it, because it appears in our mind. Mm -hmm. So if anything doesn't appear in our mind, why should we assume it exists? Mm -hmm. If we assume it exists, we are, we are believing something without any evidence. That's not very wise. Mm -hmm. Bhagavan used to say it very nicely, do not believe what you do not know. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's very profound. Huh? If it's very profound. It, it yes. does not exist. Yes. I yes. mean, that is what David Hume said. If he, I don't think he ever thought through the full implications of that. Because mm. if you, it's a very nice principle, he said. The wise man uh, apportions his belief according to the evidence, or something mm. to that effect. It may not have been exactly those words, but it amounts to that. But then we have to ask what is evident? Oh, yes. it's evident that the world exists. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. It seems to be evident, but is it actually evident? All we can say is that the world seems to exist. We have no evidence that any such thing as world exists. To say the world exists is, is, is to make a claim for which we have no evidence. Mm -hmm. The only evidence we have is that the world seems to exist. And yeah. why does it seem to exist? Because it appears in, in the field of our awareness. So without our awareness, how can we say that there's a, a world existing independent of our awareness of it? And that in itself is also is already pretty prof profound. Eh, to, yes, yes, to, yes. That the world is nothing. You could say nothing than, and, well, you said it in the video in a reply, an, an idea. It's, and I translate it also as imagination. Yes, yes. Um, but if you really, really think deeply about it, uh, you can make it even more personal. Yes. From the from the standpoint of uh, being a person, eh, you can talk about your loved ones eh, if you're not in their presence, or or if you are away on a vacation and mm. you and you don't think about your house, 
and you can you can ask yourself questions about do they exist if I'm not aware of it? Yeah. And um, um, uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, you you finish. Well, and the the relevance for me is that it can very much help in, and it do, it doesn't mean that you must stop loving your loved ones or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But it helps in detachment. A detachment. And in yes. uh, in Farakia and in Vivica. And if and we Sorry, if we are detached, we can actually love our loved ones more. Yes, of course. Because there's yes. less selfishness there. Yes. So the love is truer if yes. there is detachment. Yes, well, that's a beautiful thing to add. Yeah. So for me, that's the that's the practical implica implication of such um, understanding yeah, yes. and, and thinking about that. Yes, yes. Uh, and which helps in the practice to only abide to yes. what you truly are. Yes. Um, and we can also apply this not only to the world, even to our Advaita philosophy, we can apply this. Yes, yeah. Brahman. Is Brahman anything more? But for us, Brahman is just an idea. Yeah. Until we know us, until we, we actually experience ourselves as Brahman, Brahman is just an idea. That's why merely thinking I am Brahman is not a means to know Brahman. Because we are just identifying ourselves with a certain idea. What is Brahman? Oh, Brahman is something very big. It's pure awareness. It's this, that. These are all just words. They're just ideas. So if we, we cannot know Brahman, we cannot know God without knowing ourselves. Mm -hmm. God is for us just an idea. It may be an idea that has a profound impact on us. For a person who, for a devout person who has, uh, who has who has deep faith in God, God is more real than this world. Mm -hmm. But God is still just an idea. Mm -hmm. So if we want to know God as he actually is, we must know ourselves as we actually are. Mm -hmm. Because if God is the infinite whole, nothing can be other than him. Mm -hmm. If anything is other than God, then God is thereby limited. Mm -hmm. If God is other than myself, then God is a limited God. That's not a real God. God is existence itself. So God has to be our own reality. Mm -hmm. So how can we know God only by knowing ourselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you for, yeah. for explaining that. Yeah. So you know, we're talking now for a while. So I think it's kind of okay also because of the energy to, to wrap this up. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about the book, huh? um, 40 Verses of What Is. And I already said there will be a free, a free sample in the description box for everyone to download. And that sample includes your introduction, which is really, really awesome to read in itself. And it also has four verses. Um, and uh, I, I put it on the back cover because you said it in your introduction. This work shines as the core and crest jewel of Ramana Maharshi's uh, Bhagavan's teachings, being the quintessence of all of them. And um, you already said something about it in this video, but could you still shortly again tell why people should read um, this this work of Bhagavan, but also because there are many translations out there. I've seen a lot of them because mm. I gathered them before I started with, yeah. with this compiling this book and I saw all kind of 
differences in the translations. <laughs> yes. Could you also explain um, why it's so important to read um, the work, that, the translations and explanations that you are doing about it, and therefore part of this book? Okay. Um, firstly, why Uludunapdu is such an important work? Because many of the fundamental principles of Bhagavan's teachings are, um, are expounded by him very, very clearly in Uludunapdu. So if we understand Uludunapdu, that will help us greatly to understand other works. Of, of, of other works of Bhagavan. Likewise, understanding other works will also help us to understand Uludunapdu, yeah. that we can't take any work of Bhagavan in isolation. We can't take, like, we cannot, if we take one verse of Uludunapdu, we cannot understand it fully without understanding it in the context of all the other verses of Uludunapdu. Likewise, we cannot understand Uludunapdu without understanding it in the broader context of all of Bhagavan's original writings. But among all of Bhagavan's original writings, it is, it is very special in the, the, the focus that he puts on the fundamental principles. Many of the fundamental principles of his teaching are, are stated or implied more clearly in Uludunapadu than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So it is an extremely important work. We, nobody can, can claim to have understood Bhagavan correctly if they haven't, um, if they haven't, merely reading Uludunapadu is insufficient. We need to read it and reread it and think very deeply about it. And most important, we need to apply it in practice. So I have been studying Uludunapadu now for, um, it's close on, um, 40, when was it I came? About 47 years now. I've been studying Uludunapadu. I'm still learning from it. Yeah. Because as we go deeper in our practice, we see new, deeper levels of meaning mm -hmm. in Uludu, in all of Bhagavan's works, mm -hmm. including Uludunapadu. Mm -hmm. So it, it is not just a work to read once or twice and to say, oh, I've read Uludunapadu, I've understood it. No. We we can be studying it all our life and trying to practice it all our life, and we'll still be learning from it. And that is true of all of Bhagavan's teachings. Um, because Bhagavan's teachings, though they're extremely simple, they're also extremely deep and subtle. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> regarding the translation, there are many translations of Uludunapadu and other works of Bhagavan by people who really didn't understand what Bhagavan is talking about. That is one of the principal ideas that's running through so many of verses of Uludunapadu is that ego is the base of everything. But many people where Bhagavan is referring to ego, they say, they, they take it as referring to our real nature. For example, earlier I was talking about verse 9, when he said that dyads and triads always cling to one thing. Many translations take that one thing to be our real self, mm -hmm. our real nature, what we actually are. That's missing the point. Um, 
and so many other places where Bhagavan is actually referring to our real nature, people take it, they, they misinterpret it. Mm -hmm. The previous verse, verse 8, there's a classic misinterpretation. Bhagavan says in the first verse, first sentence of verse 8, in that verse he doesn't use the word God, he uses the word poral. Poral means substance. In the previous verse, he had defined what he means by yeah. substance. Only that which exists uh, without appearing and disappearing, as the base for the appearing and disappearing, of the mind and world is poral. Uh, that is the pundram, that is the whole. It's, so by poral, he means the, the ultimate substance, the one thing that actually really exists. Then in verse 8, he says, um, whoever worships in whatever form, giving whatever name, that is the means to see that poral in name and form. What he uses, the, the term he uses for pair, for name or in name and form is pair uruvil. Il is a, is a locative case ending. So the simple meaning for that, he's, in, in the first sentence, he talks about seeing in name and form. In the second sentence, he sees, talks about seeing in truth. In other words, seeing it as it actually is. So in both cases, he says, he uses the locative case ending, unmail in truth, perurubil in name and form. However, ill can also be taken as an abbreviation of two other words. It can be taken as an abbreviation of ilada. Ilada means without. So it could be taken to mean of that reality which is without name and form. In other words, that nameless and formless reality. But if he's talking about seeing that nameless and formless reality, what is, what is the point of that? I mean, why does he, yes, we know when reality is nameless and formless, that's clearly implied in the previous verse. But here he's talking about the seeing. So he's talking about seeing that nameless. Of, of course, we all accept that substance, that reality is nameless and formless. But he's talking about seeing it. What he means is seeing it in name and form. Il can also mean, instead of, ilada means which is without name and form. That, that is, peruru ilada means without name and form or nameless and formless. It can also be, and ill can also be an abbreviation of illadu. Illadu would mean without name and form. Seeing it without name and form. Some people have translated it as that. Worshipping that supreme reality, that ultimate reality, he doesn't even say supreme reality, that reality in name and form is the way to see it without name and form. People, some people have taken it. But that's clearly not what he means, because the, the very next sentence he says, ayinum, a word ayinum means however. So there's a contrast between the first sentence and the second sentence. In the second sentence he says, um, knowing one's own reality and thereby subsiding in the reality of that substance, alone is seeing in truth. So. If that alone is seeing in truth, 
obviously he's in, what he's talking about in the first sentence is he's contrasting about with what he's talking in the first sentence. So anyone who has a deep understanding will understand what he's talking about in the first sentence, worshipping in name and form, you know, giving it whatever, that you're worshipping in any form, giving it whatever name is a way to see it in name and form. If you worship God as Krishna, in the form of a blue boy playing a flute, and you give it the name Krishna, and you worship in that form, that is the way to see God in that form. But that's not really seeing him. If you see, if you know your own reality, and thereby you subside in the reality of that one thing, that is the seeing in truth. But people have misunderstood that. Even in the second sentence, people have misunderstood, have misunderstood it because in a Tamil verse, words don't always follow the natural prose order. Even in English verses, sometimes you, the, the words will not be expressed as you would normally express it in prose. The, the sentence will be a bit jumbled up, but you can still understand what it means. So in Tamil the verses, often the words are not said in the normal prose order. So sometimes in order to get the correct meaning, it's not only necessary to split the word in the verse into words, because the words are all um, are, are all um, fused together uh, according to the rules of Sandhi, that is euphonic conjunction, and then they're divided according to the metrical feet. So half of one word may be in one metrical feet, uh, the other half may be in another metrical foot. So you first have to split the word verse into words. That's called padachetam. Then for many verses, you also have to do what is called anveyam. Anveyam is making it into a natural prose order. If you don't do that, you can sometimes arrive at the wrong meaning. So in this second sentence, many people have translated it according to the order of words in the verse, knowing one's own reality in the reality of that real thing and subsiding is knowing in truth. What does it mean, knowing one's own reality and the reality of that thing? It, it makes it sound like there are two things. That is missing the point. Knowing one's own reality and subsiding in the reality of that real thing. Because one's own reality is the reality of that real thing. So by knowing one's own reality, one thereby subsides in that. So there are so many subtleties there, but require proper understanding. And there are so many other verses that have been misinterpreted in so many ways. That is, in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 are about knowing and not knowing. Mm -hmm. Many people take that which we have interpreted it to mean, but what knows knowledge, what has knowledge and ignorance is our real self. That in knowledge and ignorance yeah. depend upon our real self. That is missing the point. Because our real self is not knowing or not knowing anything or not knowing anything. As he clearly says in verse 12, the real awareness is that which is aware of not, that is completely devoid of knowledge and ignorance. Mm -hmm. So without understanding it, if people translate it, the resulting translation will reflect not what Bhagavan meant, but what they, what certain translators understood. Yeah. So the vast majority of 
translation to Vuludunapu from the very earliest ones that were made in Bhagavan's lifetime are actually misinterpreting it. So it's very important to, to have accurate translations. I have, firstly, I've tried to translate as accurately as possible, word that is to, to, to translate it as it actually is there. So I give a first I give a, a bare translation. Then to try to help people to understand the deeper implication, I give an explanatory paraphrase in which I add other words in in uh, square brackets. And later on, now I'm working on translating Uludu Napdu Anabandam. And because many people have told me, why don't you do the word for word meaning? I've started to do word for word meaning. So I will later add that to, um, I will later add word for word meanings to all my existing translations. Yeah. When I do that, you can perhaps add it to the book if you want to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in, the, in this book, I added. Uh, of course, Bhag Bhagavan's uh, verse in his, I don't know how to call it, the Cyrillic writing. Do you say it like that? Uh, the Tamil writing, you mean? Yeah, the Tamil writing. Well, it's... it's. Oh, oh the, the transliteration, you mean? Uh, I have no idea how you call it. I, I mean, I have the word separation, I have the translation, and I have the explanatory paraphrase in the yes. book. But also, the, the, Tamil, uh, the Tamil words are in there, and then, I don't know how you call that. Transliteration, uh, when the Tamil words are written in Roman script. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I just mean the Tamil words, but you can have you can write them in two ways, of course. And the yes. one that one way I can't read, you can read it. I yeah, can't. Yes. And the other one I can read, but I don't understand what it says yeah, there. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've added those in the yes, books, yes. of course. Oh, oh, there are also people right. who are interested in those words. Yeah. So. I want to thank you very, very, very much for helping us, all devotees out there who are interested in Bhagavan's teachings in getting more under, more clarity about what he is saying in those verses. I can only talk for myself. It, it really, really helps me. Uh, it helped me and it still helps me a lot. Uh, how you, you, if you want to thank you, you always say, don't thank me, yeah? thank Bhagavan. <laughs> <But> <laughs> still, it all comes from him only. Yes, but but still, um, it it helps me a lot, and I hope even how am I able to understand it? It's entirely by His grace. Yes, well, <laughs> so my own understanding is then yes. if I yes. if I if I yes. if that if I take that to be is also His grace, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So thank you for that, Nam Ramanaya. Okay. okay.